0: I, uh, as John was saying, uh, this church has been remarkably blessed with a number of, uh, I don't know if I want to call us young men now, but men who um, have been able to, well, yeah, Gary is definitely not young. I don't know. I don't know how much pastor <laughs> at. he left first. I saw him left. Um, and uh, it is a blessing. A number of you have, uh, are my friends. I remember I'm very appreciative of Zach. I don't see him, but. Um, he bought me my first seminary book when I started at Cedarville four or five years ago. And um, just all the people that have uh, ministered in this church have always been a blessing to me. And I love being able to be back here with you, our church family, and being able to share with you. And it, uh, it hurts that uh, my favorite person isn't here, and that's why I'm here. It's the cover for him. So I'll have to catch up with... Uh, with Pastor Conrad and Diane some other time, but until then, it is wonderful to see all of your faces and be with you here even in these uh, abbreviated service times. I was told uh, that we're supposed to be out of here by about 11.30-ish, and I made them say ish because I'm not great at like hitting a mark that closely, so bear with me, and uh, we're actually gonna look at something today. I forgot my clicker, so Braden's gonna have to uh, keep up with me or whoever's uh, computer on there. And uh, I started a series a while back uh, from all of the uncertainty that's going on, um, and I'll get to that. It's not Sunday evening, in case you haven't figured that out. This is uh, I usually preach at night. Uh, this is my PowerPoint from then. But in tumultuous times, many people they doubt what they've known before. Even even the the most solid Christians, the most faithful Christians, and uncertainly we ask ourselves things uh, that we've answered before. Um, Even the surest things. You know, this year, there's a lot of memes going on around about, you know, this year's been the worst. There's no way next year could possibly be worse. And even if that's true, God's gotten us through this year so far. But it's made us question, what's our responsibility as citizens? What's our responsibility as as People who have dual citizenship in the world, part of heaven and part of the world. Is God doing anything? What am I supposed to be doing about what God is doing, if anything? Is my church doing anything uh, about this year? What am I supposed to be doing? Is my church doing the right thing? What am I supposed to be doing in my church? You can see there's a lot of different questions you can ask yourself, and I'm assuming you have in the last uh, nine months or so. And these are very, very natural questions, and, but they need to be answered. They need to be answered because there are answers and there's good ones. What is the church tasked with in this age, ever since Christ ascended and left us, left us the scriptures, He left us the Holy Spirit after Pentecost? What is it tasked with? How are we sure what the answer to that is? There's biblical example, of course. Acts begins the beginning of the church age, and then we get to see all the letters that Paul wrote to all of his church plants, saying, do this, don't do this, do this, don't do this. But we can know for sure the early church was blown away by the gospel. It confused the disciples while they were being discipled by Christ. They thought it was all about war and blood and and taking back their country, and they realized it was more about sacrifice, giving, and love. They were astounded at sanctification processes and pushed to evangelize those who didn't know God. They took care of each other, spiritually even. They made lifelong disciples. All of the disciples became martyrs, but before that happened, they were able to go out and reach and befriend and touch lives. They invested in the next generation, especially young men who would be future leaders. And I, As an aside, I feel like that's partially what this church has done and part of their calling to this city. You've taken the young men that have been attracted to this body and valued them and invested in them. And if you were a part of that, um, you have done well. Our main text this morning, our first main text anyway, is going to be John 3, if you want to turn there. We won't stay there as a warning, but we will be there for a little while. I want to explain this series... um, Thinking through the year, I think I came up with this in June or July. You know, there's just so many things you question. What is a solid church? What does a solid church look like? What are we What are we supposed to be doing in this time? Um, And that was this was even before I remembered it was an election year, and that's you know obviously caused a stir in the last three or four months. And continue praying for our leaders that they would have wisdom and stamina. So I came up with six signs of a growing church, and we're going to look at the first one today. And I, I have to admit, this wasn't totally original. I, I did uh, write these after reading uh, one of Mark Deaver's books, so he, he influenced me. But um, I changed them for what I believe Scripture teaches, that we are to beat. How do you line your church up against Scripture? Well, there's six different things that I think were pretty clear. And the first one is that the first sign of a growing church is they understand the fullness of the Gospel. The fullness of the Gospel. I think all of you could probably tell me what the Gospel is or how you were saved or who led you to Christ. For me, it was my mother. I was at a young age. I was six or seven. And her, her care and her um, completeness in sharing the Gospel was what attracted me to it. And it's different for all of us, I know. But... Growing churches fully understand the gospel as a first sign. The gospel is the heart of Christianity, the absolute center. So it should be the heart of our churches. Christianity is what we are supposed to spread. Not to be confused with Westernism or Judaism or materialism or all the the other isms that we're tempted to spread. Christianity, the love of Christ to the masses. Apologist Gary Habermas writes, the good news, or the gospel, is the primary message that Christians should want to share. And not only that, but everything in a church flows from its understanding of the gospel. That's a common quote. And oftentimes you see in your life that everything you do flows from your understanding of God and your worship of God. And I believe that's true. We can only see ourselves accurately in the, through the eyes of God. He sees us as sinners, we're sinners. He sees us as redeemable, we are redeemable. He sees us as His children. And uh, nothing is like uh, God of absolute truth being able to sh- see us and share what He sees with us. But a church, church's programs, a church's strategy should flow from their understanding of the Gospel. So we need to make sure we understand it very well. So I, uh, that's the first sign. The proposition I want to put forward to you is a church whose members fully understand this, the Gospel, they know it and they cherish it above everything else. That's going to be my two points. They know it and they cherish it above everything else. So there's a comparison as well. You always have to ask a question of your proposition. I don't know, I didn't get to hear any of the other speakers, and I'd not going to teach you to preach today, but you, there's always a begged question in a sermon. It's where we derive our points from. Make a statement, then how do you decide to talk about that statement? You ask it a question. So I'm going to ask, what is the gospel exactly? What is the gospel that we're supposed to know and that we're supposed to cherish? And uh, so, like I said, back to basics. John 3, you probably could have guessed. I'm going to include verse 16, even though we're going to read all the way through 18 as the primary uh, text, and that will get, get us uh, our subpoints. It says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Um, I don't know what, uh, I forgot to ask John what translation you guys usually hear. I try to stick three or four in my sermons for complete, completeness of, uh, of understanding. And there's four words I want to point out in verse 16 that I think really capture the essence of the gospel. Four concepts, if you will. Words that lead us to concepts. The first is God. The entire pericope is about God. God loved the world. He would be the subject of this, this sentence paragraph. The world is the second one. God so loved the world. Who did He love? He died for it. He showed His love to it. So, we are the direct object. This is not an English lesson. I just want to lay it out. God, It's so very, very clear. We're the recipients of that love. God is showing us that love. Third word concept. How did He do this? He did it through His Son. His only Son. KJV says only begotten Son. And then the way that it is to be done, the uh, action, if you will, is to believe. Whoever believes in Him cannot perish but have everlasting life. So let's look at those four things. First off, we're going to look at God who is holy and sovereign. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, go back. <laughs> he is holy and sovereign. And it is this is, this is where our, our image of God, our, our understanding of God's character becomes vital. If you don't understand God as holy and sovereign and needing to stay holy, then you don't understand why uh, He had to kick Adam and Eve out of the garden. You don't understand why He had to send the flood to destroy evil. You don't understand why He had to call Abraham out of the idolatry there and send him west so that he could make him of him a great nation. Why the nation? So they could look different than the other nations. And yes, they ultimately failed in that. But you have to understand, he, the entire time he was trying to communicate his holiness and the necessity of keeping it. Once we lost ours, once Adam and Eve fell in the garden, God has been trying to uh, do nothing but make us holy again. That's the point of Christianity, of receiving Christ into our hearts, is to get us away from the life of sin so that we have a choice, so that we consistently choose Christ and God-like decisions. I chose Isaiah 29 in here. My, um, I believe at the time I preached this, my co-worker, Pastor Bob, and I were going through a devotional in Isaiah, and he pointed out this verse to me. One day, one morning, he said, um, it had, he was reading it overnight, and he says, "...they shall sanctify my name, and sanctify the Holy One of Jacob, and shall fear the God of Israel." Now, sanctify, we, we know, means set apart. Not a part of the masses, but different, unique, holy. And he wants his name set apart to set apart the Holy One of Jacob, the God of Jacob, who was holy, and to fear Him. Not fear and, of course, the afraid kind of fear, even though God is capable of fearful acts, but an awe to be so floored by the absolute holiness and sovereignty of God that we feel totally unworthy, in awe in His presence when we worship God promised that where two or three are gathered in His name, and I'm pretty sure we've made it clear we're gathered in His name this morning, He will be there in the middle of us. He's here. We should be feeling the awe when we sing, when we pray, when we listen, when we read Scripture. But we must see this in the light of His holiness. His judgment is the focus of this, not our mistakes. This comes from a, a prophetic book full of mistakes of Israel. It's really sad. It's, uh, it's also got the chapter that points to Christ, and that's the encouraging part of Isaiah. But most of it is just, you know, mess up prophecy, mess up prophecy, mess up prophecy. It's really depressing. Most of the, uh, most of the prof- uh, prophetic books are like that, where Israel fails and it fails and it fails and it fails, kind of like we fail. If you're thinking about getting judgmental, we fail just as much as they did except they had specific prophets to them, right? So the idea is His holiness, His judgment, and that sets uh, the stage perfectly for the second thing we see in John 3, which is humans, the world. I think I put man. That's supposed to be mankind. Romans five twelve says, Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. For under the law sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed when... There is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over them that had not sinned, after the similitude of Adam's transgression. Who's the figure of him that was to come? So, we see humans in God's image, but fallen. We are sinful. How did it enter? Through Adam, obviously as the not the first sinner, but as the head of the race, who spoke for the race when he succumbed to the temptation of the tree and even the serpent, that is how sin entered the world. Sin nature. And what did God promise would happen if they ate of it? You will surely die. It was a death. Now, it wasn't the physical death that they probably assumed and that Satan kind of hinted at, It was a spiritual death. And they would come to find that there is no worse death than dying spiritually. Because it also meant you die physically, eventually. Even though mankind lived to about a thousand years up until that point. uh, There is nothing worse than spiritual death. So death passed upon all men. So we have sin, and we have death, and finally, the curse. Death reigned even over them that had not sinned. Okay? The second generation, guess what? They were born in sin. We were born in sin. Just like Cain and Abel and Seth, we are cursed. Not because we sin, but because we are descendants of Adam. Again, we could be tempted to be like, man, I hate that guy. <laughs> I, could have, I could have stood up to her or stood up to the, the serpent if I were in his shoes. No, you couldn't have. We are like him. That's the entire point. You would have sinned also. I would have sinned also. But that lays out who we are in God's eyes. We were in His image, and we are still in His image, but that image is marred for all time unless you know Christ. And thirdly, the Savior comes onto the stage that He gave His only begotten Son. That would be Christ, of course. Acts and Paul's letters emphasize three vital things a Christian must believe about Christ. His deity, His death in our place, and His resurrection. But I want to read a portion of Scripture, a pericope that summarizes this very well, nearly perfectly. And it's it's possible that... Uh, who's ever heard of a catechism? Oh, great. Most of you. Alright. So, I don't, I don't remember if this church does that or not, but those were very common uh, back in the day. They called them creeds, not catechisms, but because... At the time, the New Testament wasn't uh, canonized. There's, the books were still circulating. The letters were still circulating amongst the churches. And so the disciples could teach very important theology, parts of Scripture, They uh, things they learned from Christ. They made it into kind of like a, a, a mantra. And and then you would memorize that and pass it around at your house meetings, your church meetings, and when you travel from city to city. So many people think 1 Corinthians 15 is... Uh, part of an Apostle's Creed that was um, part of that because it summarizes the belief in Christ so well. It says, For I delivered unto you... I'm sorry, this is 15 verse 3. For I delivered unto you, first of all, that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried, and that He rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. Okay, So Paul is talking about the Gospel I delivered unto you. He planted so many churches around... Uh, Macedonia and Mesopotamia and the uh, Asia Minor, um, and he tried to write to most of them. And I don't, I think he wrote to more than God actually gave us record of, and that, we actually have record of that. And that's totally okay. We know the Spirit blessed the canonization of Scripture, um, but he tried to write as much as he possibly could. He knew that his spiritual children would falter, just like we falter. We will fail at our Christian life unless we immerse ourselves. In Scripture, the Pauline epistles are some of my favorite. Uh, they deal with such um, average life <laughs> and where we are, where we're at. So, how how did he lay out the gospel in these three verses? He said, "Christ died for our sins. He died for our sins as God the Lamb. Yes, he is part God. I shouldn't say he's part God. He is one of the persons of God, God the Son." But he was able to come to earth. For what? To be the sacrificial lamb. Much like Abraham was instructed to take his son to the top of the mount and instructed to uh, prepare to sacrifice him. This lamb actually was slain. Christ willingly went. Ephesians 2 said, uh, humbling himself. Becoming the, in the image of a man. That, was, that in itself was humbling. Maybe not painful. That the God of the universe would put Himself in a human body. But He didn't just die. Satan didn't just orchestrate His death and win. He was buried. That's verse 4. But He rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. That's on a Sunday, obviously. it's why we celebrate Easter when we do. And why Good Friday is when it is. He was in the grave. And He was risen on Sunday. The third day. These are the tenets, or almost to the fourth part, the reaction. But these are the things we're supposed to be sharing with people. I know it doesn't come up in everyday conversation, usually, which is why we have to be intentional. Signs of a growing church show intentionality of its members to spread the gospel. How are we supposed to respond to these three things found in John 3? It describes it in the very simple wording of belief. It's such a short word. Belief. And it is that simple. Romans 10.9 says that if thou shalt confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. If you confess with your mouth. We don't need, just need peace. We don't just need joy, even though these are the things that we crave and the, peop- the, things that, the people that we know, the things that they crave, and the things that God can offer them. But what they ultimately need, their, their deepest need, if you will, is God Himself. They need Him. We are damned. We are lost without Him. And yes, he provides all that wonderful thing through the relationship—joy, peace, justice—in its own way. But we must do this twofold thing to accept him: confess and believe. And a confession is uh, a lot of people have tried to explain confession, and a lot of a lot of uh, the explanations that we go with is just to agree. To say with your mouth, Lord, I know I am a sinner in Your eyes. We can trust Him because God defines sin. He is the sinless One. I know I don't deserve Your love or forgiveness, but You've claimed that if I call on You, You will respond. You will save me. And belief isn't just this. Uh, um, you know that that unfortunately that term has been kind of mushed, mushed. Up in the last 50 years or so, that and love and a couple other uh, really key Christian terms have been softened by Westernism and Hollywood. Belief is not just in your mind or in your heart, it's visible on the outside. When you believe in Christ as your personal Savior, your life is changed. Your destiny, the destiny of your soul, is changed, and your actions. Change. Now, it's, it's a little harder to see in young people because they haven't gotten around to living a whole lot before they were saved. I was saved young. Those of my friends that uh, have shared their testimonies with me that were saved older, it's amazing to see the difference that God can make in a life when, when the person has so uh, well many problems to fix, honestly. And, and my gratitude towards God is... That he has kept me from a lot of those issues because I was saved early. And it doesn't matter when our friends are saved, they need the gospel. Period. It is what we're here for. You know, without getting into you know social justice and, and being kind to your neighbor and stuff, that is the only reason you're here. You and I are allowed to remain on this earth, and we were converted so that other people could hear about the love of God. Now, I know a lot of that was basic. At least I hope it was. If not, I'm really glad you came today, because you need to know that as a professing Christian. If you're not, certainly see one of the church's leaders after the service, I'm sure they'd love to talk to you. But now that we've been reminded about what knowing what the gospel looks like, I want to talk about what uh, cherishing the Gospel looks like. And I think this is really where it's going to hit a lot of the professing believers because this is the one we struggle with. At least it's the one I struggle with. What does cherishing the Gospel look like? One of the first things I thought of is that it looks like knowing the Gospel best or knowing it better than anything else is another way to say that. What do I mean by that? Alright. Uh... Who here is a sports fan? OK. Good. That's about a third. Tell, give me a, a QB's name, James. OK, I don't even know who that is. <laughs> All right. Good. All right. Who here is a uh, stock market watcher? Ooh. Okay, well, we're probably not going to do too great in the future, but that's okay. All right, who here likes uh, paying attention to politics? Name a politician, Andrew. Uh, Mike Turner. Okay. Is it bad? I don't know who he is. <laughs> I, I'm, I obviously focus on my church a lot. <laughs> All right, now, I could keep asking fields of interest, and I could keep asking names. And you guys would just keep giving them to me. And that's fine. We should, you should be aware. Apparently, I'm supposed to be a little bit more aware of America. But my point is, is that thing, that interest, whatever your hobby is, whatever you spend your extra time doing, what you care about the most? Is it what you cherish the most? Instead of a relationship with God, the relationship with God that you probably already have, that's supposed to be so life-transforming and supposed to be so uh, powerful and awe-filling, is that what you spend your time studying? Is that what you spend the most amount of time, not all of it, because I think that would drive you crazy, probably, but most of your time cherishing? I, uh, I struggle with this one a little bit because I... I lost some family members earlier on in my life, and so it made me. I think it made me prioritize memories or maybe family life a little bit more than most people. And I struggle with prioritizing, maybe we should use the word worshiping so it's a little more insulting. I struggle worshiping memories or nostalgia more than other people, I think. Whatever your issue is, that cannot take the place of cherishing the gospel. It can't, unless we're going to become totally useless to God. And that is why I think this is a great sign of a growing church. This literally will affect whether your church grows. If you don't prioritize the soul that lives next to you, or shops next to you, or parks next to you, then guess what? You're not going to witness to them, they're not going to be converted, and they're not going to come to your church. For the record, when I say growing church, I don't just mean numerically, even though that is a big part of it. I mean biblical spiritual maturity. Witnessing to people is just as good for us, well, nearly as good for us as it is for them. Why? It stretches you. It pushes you to prioritize heathens every time you say something. It pushes you out of your comfort zone if you're doing it right. It makes you better at talking in public, I know there's a lot of people. I used to be scared to get up here and talk. I'm surprised that you, I used to be scared of you guys. But, you know, it's five years ago, I don't remember the first time I subbed, but five-ish years ago, you know, I was really nervous, probably. And, uh, and some of that should not ever go away. But you should be pushing yourselves out of your comfort zones constantly so that you grow spiritually, not just so the church can succeed numerically or financially. What else gets in our way here? I said uh, our history, media, we've really struggled with this year. I know some people who've kind of sworn off Facebook uh, or other. I stopped watching the news. I mean, I didn't like it even before this year, so that wasn't hard. But I stopped watching the news, I think it was like February, actually. It wasn't even after COVID. It was before COVID, you know. And now you you can pick and choose online who you want to listen to. 20 years ago, that wasn't an option. You either watched the news or you didn't know anything. Now we can do that, and I thank God for that. But are you a news junkie? Are you a political junkie? Right now it's really easy because there's a huge political mess going on. Are you a sports junkie? What do you prioritize above the gospel? Because it's pretty apparent in people's lives. What do you spend your extra time talking about? Or do you only talk about God at church? That's a convicting one. Entertainment. I struggle with this one a little bit. You know, when you have a thought-intensive job, as some of you do, as I do, you know, really, you get off or you go home and you just really don't want to think, which isn't good for your family, by the way. You want to continue thinking or pretty soon your spouse will think that you don't think. And that's not true. (laughs) Okay, but you want to unwind. And entertainment is great, except you have to be very careful that you don't prioritize it over something, over the gospel. We had somebody over uh, a couple weeks ago, a young couple from our church, and uh, it wasn't for long, because we, you know, the kid, all the kids had to be in bed, they have kids. And uh, it's still like seven. And they, I realized after they left that we had spent, I had spent the majority of our evening, our dinner conversation, rather, talking about our entertainment preferences. Media, movies, Marvel, I think it was one, one of the interests we shared. And it was really convicting to me. And I... Uh, I thankfully I see this this other husband a lot, and so I can I can fix that mistake. But it made me realize that unless you're careful and unless you're intentional about your spiritual growth and what comes out of your mouth, what you think about, the default's not going to be the gospel. Okay? Satan doesn't want you to think about God. He doesn't want you to think about souls. If he can keep you distracted by yourselves or the world or your preferences, he's gonna. And if we let him, he's going to. You have to be the one who chooses to focus. Something else that cherishing it reveals, or it looks like, is our desire to share the gospel with the world increases. I already talked about this, so I shot myself in the foot. But um, it's not just about doing longer devotions, or meditating upon God's goodness more, or Uh, other internal things. It does start there, don't get me wrong. You can't have a plant or a bush or a tree without a seed and growth. That is the first step. But it doesn't stop there. Our desire to share the gospel increases. Uh, We did a study of um, the fruits of the Spirit. Actually, that was four or five years ago in this youth group here. And I think Jared and Jesse and I just shared the topics. But I was doing one of them, and one thing I ran across was a story about you know, you can't just have one fruit of the Spirit. You can't just be loving and have none of the other ones. If somebody showed me somebody like that and I confirmed it, then I would, I would say they're a hypocrite. You have to be faking that love. It can't be genuine. Because God doesn't grow people all in one area and not at all in another. Granted, some of us might have strengths, spiritual gifts, things like that. But you must also be a little peaceful, a little just, a little patient, a little kind. He grows us as a whole. And as you do those devotions and show to yourself and God that you do prioritize the gospel above all else, it's going to come out. It's a natural outpouring of your priorities into your life. I was really convicted about this when I worked... Uh, I worked at a couple factories in college, and I did a terrible, terrible job of witnessing between my sophomore and junior year. I was really convicted about it, so 2010, I went home, got stuck in another factory, and uh, I was put beside this this uh, mentally ill man named Chuck for two, uh, two out of the three months, I think. And it, it took me a while to understand him. Uh, I got the, his life story and stuff, but I would, God eventually allowed enough quiet in the factory, for me to share my story and the Gospel with him. And I have not seen him since. And I don't know if he ever accepted Christ, but I do know that he heard it. He heard the Gospel. Now, there, maybe there's some people that you, you care about their opinion a little bit more than others. Um, that shouldn't matter. We should be so full of agape love unconditional Christ-like love that who we're witnessing to, how we're going about it, shouldn't embarrass us at all. Why? Because we care more about the opinion of our Creator. It's not that we don't care about what people think. Thank you. I know I'm skipping around in my notes. Um, it's not that we don't care what people think. You have to care what your neighbors think or you're a bad neighbor. I mean, you have to care what your employer there's Cares about, or you'll probably be fired. But do you care about what God cares about the most? Do you allow the fear of humans' opinions to affect your priorities in your spiritual life? God's works, we looked at the word sanctification earlier, and that's why this is up here. Being set apart. God setting us apart should produce a certain type of thing. One is the unconditional love to witness. Also, the ability to fight certain things. Uh, Apathy. I didn't cover. We covered sinful fear, but sinful apathy. I don't know them. I don't really want to care about them. That is, I think, pretty much where we're at. I would say 50 years ago, yeah, it was about being afraid of your friends and what they thought. Peer pressure, right? Negative peer pressure. Now, I think the church, the Western church, struggles with the most is even caring about those people. You don't know them personally. We can't know everyone personally, but you do know some people. And if you, the people that you know, do you really care about their soul? Do you just want to have fun with them? Do you just want to uh, ignore them because hanging around with them makes you uncomfortably aware of your Christian responsibilities? It does me sometimes. You go to the same grocery store twice a week. I don't shop that much anymore, um, but you know, there's I, there's a point where I started memorizing some clerks' names. There was a guy here. I can't believe I remember this uh, here at, who worked at Walmart here about four years ago. And I never having had a long conversation with him. His name was Jeffrey, spelled weird with a G, I think. You got, did right? Do you guys know who I was talking? Okay, all right. I don't know if he's still there or not. I said hi to him whenever I saw him. He's the only guy I knew at Walmart. There's people that we know. We might not know them well, but if we could, if we did, would we be loving enough, not apathetic, loving enough to care and say something? All right, and we covered sinful fear out of order. One thing I did want to promote was this uh, book, about peer pressure called When People Are Big and God Is Small. I know quite a few of my uh, friends have read that and, and said it has changed their life about caring about other people's opinions more than God's. So I'd recommend that book to you. And then lastly, God doesn't just sanctify us in our lives, but the Spirit motivates us to act. I mentioned that Pentecost gave us the third person of the Trinity to empower us to choose, be able to choose God over sin when we want to. What kind of actions does He motivate us to do? Pray. Praying for those lost that you know in your life is one of the biggest uh, burden starters, I would say, in the world you start talking about them to our God, to your Creator, you start caring about them more. And as much as Disney says we're supposed to follow our heart, I'm going to tell you, it is possible to lead your heart, especially with intentional thinking and intentional spiritual practices like prayer. You pray for those people, God's going to give you a burden for them. What else can we do that involves the Spirit? I don't know what I put on here. Can you guys put on the next one? Okay, I didn't think so. Gospel conversations. This is the, the, the heart and soul of witnessing really is as much as you might try to be a good neighbor, you try to be loving, you try to be servant, uh, a servant-like person to everyone, eventually it does come down to brass tacks. The Gospel does have to come out of your mouth or be communicated somehow. Some people witness via email. Some people can only get to the people they're burdened for on the phone. That's fine, but at some point, it's got to come out of you to overflow from that spiritual maturity and that prayer into a conversation. Sometimes people make it really, really intentional, and that is a good strategy to sit down and say, all right, we've been dancing around this topic for years or months or days or whatever, however long you've known them, and we're going to talk about this. And you could, you could preface it with, I don't, I don't really care what you think about me, although I, I'm not sure that would be best. Um, but some people, you know, some people really, really appreciate candor. That honesty and you know, that kind of rude abrasiveness is really common now, even amongst friends. <laughs> we call it sarcasm. You know, but if you're friendly with someone, preface it with that. They have to know you prioritize something higher than them eventually anyway. You love them for their soul, I hope. Alright, and lastly, and this is another strategy um, that I think has been kind of lost lately, is, is friendship evangelism. In, now, and there is, there is um, arguments for both strategies, and I don't think either one is worse or better, but sometimes, especially in the Western world, I think, where trust is at an absolute low, you know, you meet a stranger, you don't automatically trust them. And it's sad that's lost, but kind of inevitable, I think. It's natural for people to want to know you first before you talk about really personal stuff like their spirit. For some people, religion is like the most personal thing you can discuss. And for others, it's like the dumbest thing you can discuss because they don't, they're not religious. So you have to gauge your acquaintances that way, but some of them. Uh, what's the old adage? My one of our professors used to say it at college: "People don't care how much you know until they know how much you care." And it, you know that always sounded silly until you know the first time I had to confront a friend, or confront a uh, an acquaintance, or witness. So they're like, "That is so true." They do not care about your opinion until you have somehow been Christ to them. Until you've somehow shown them such unconditional love, inexplicable love, really, because the, the world's not full of agape love, that they're like, well, this person's different. This person cares, and they don't have a reason to. They don't have an ulterior motive. I'm not paying them. I'm not bribing them. You know, You don't have an understanding. They just care. And that is what makes Christ and Christianity special amongst the, well, false religions and cults of the world. We have a leader who is defined by unconditional, inexplicable love. And that's the God that we get to worship. That's the God that we get to share with people. So, obviously I don't get to finish this series with you, but when you think about your own spiritual health, when you think about the health of this specific body, when you think of the the spiritual health of the universal church, I hope the gospel is one of the first things that pops into your mind. Because that is what God has shaped this age around. He's provided all the tools, all the players, to be here to do our jobs not not to be disrespectful in, in the amazing duty that this is, but it is a job. It's a task. It is a task full of blessing and heartbreak and and spirit-filled angst. Those we love sometimes those we love who we know are lost don't they know, at least mentally, what the truth is, and they don't respond like you're supposed to. They know God is God and holy and just, and they know humans are fallen and need redemption, and they know Christ is the answer. But they don't respond correctly. They don't resp- or they don't respond at all. And I think most of us know people like that. At least one or five. How are you going to react to your continued instruction to share the love of Christ with the world. Let's pray.